and now we head over to the Abbey Theatre for a very special edition of Arena with Sean Rocks. And just to let you know, there is some strong language throughout. Hello and welcome to the stage of the Abbey Theatre for this Arena special on The Weir by Conor McPherson. A group of locals gather in a pub on a windy night in rural Ireland. The landlord, Brendan, and his regulars, Jack and Jim, are joined by a local landowner, Finbar, and his new tenant, a young woman called Valerie. As the drink flows, the men begin to tell stories of a supernatural nature. But when Valerie shares her own sad and ghostly story, something shifts within the men, and for a brief moment, anything is possible. That is the essence of the weir written 25 years ago and a huge success for the young playwright at that time, Conor McPherson. In Britain, there was an Olivia Award, a George Devine and an Evening Standard Award. In the US, there was a Critics Circle Award for Best New Play. There was also an Olivia Award for Best Actor in a Supporting Role, and that was for Brendan Coyle as Brendan at that time, but he's back in a different part for this production. For this arena special, I am sitting at the bar, deep in the set of The Weir, with its writer, Conor McPherson, beside me and next to him. On the other bar stool uh, here beside me is uh, director of this production and artistic director of the Abbey, Katrina McLaughlin. Over behind me on this side, on the other side of the stage, we have the cast, Sean Fox, who plays the barman Brendan. Beside him are the two local men, uh, the already mentioned Brendan Coyle, who now plays the garage owner, Jack. Marty Ray, who plays Jim. And then we have Peter Coonan, who plays Finbar. Once of the same parish as the lads, but now living in the local town of Carrick and doing very well for himself. Thank you very much. And also we have Valerie, played by Jolie Abraham, the woman who has come down from Dublin to rent a house from Finbar. Over outside the pub, beside a parked car, are two musicians, Eamon Cagney and Courtney Cullen. We'll be hearing from them later on as well. It's lovely to be here in the Abbey Theatre. It's lovely to be here with both Katrina and Connor. And Connor, this, this play, I can't believe it's 25 years old. I presume you can't either. But you have to go back to your childhood, I suppose, to get the starting point for these ghostly stories that we hear in The Weir. Yeah, I think um, the Weir owes a lot to my trips to see my granddad who lived in County Leitrim. And when I was about 15, I used to, you know, go off by myself and go and stay with him for a week every now and again. And uh, it was just very different going down to see him there. He lived on his own down a winding Boreen. Uh, I grew up in Rohini, so my upbringing was in the suburbs and shopping centres and going into town on the bus and all that kind of stuff and out where he lived it was just very silent and you just hear nature and he lived actually right beside a fairy fort and um, he would tell me stories about fairy folklore and uh, ghost stories and bits of history and I think in some way all that stuff kind of blew in the door of my mind and stayed there and um, eventually a few years later made its way into this play. Uh, And even at the time of hearing your grandfather tell you those stories had you any sense that they might become something like a play? Had you any sense that a playwright might be the eventual route that you would take? Uh, At that point, probably not. I was playing music a lot and I was playing in bands and things like that. So, you know, I was any writing I I would have thought of doing was probably just very bad pop lyrics, really. (laughs) But, um, you know, I was always interested in reading and always interested in stories. And when I was even younger, in fact, when I was about 10 or 11, 
uh, and we used to get together with our friends and we would be in the garage of our house and uh, we used to sit around and tell ghost stories and I used to make them up and I used to I used to always try and make them very realistic so that they were just a hint of the supernatural so it could be true. I always thought that when people told a ghost story and everybody died at the end, I always thought, well, nobody lived to tell the story, so that can't be true. <laughs> so I would always have it that it was just a little hint of something that would make people creeped out, but that it could be real, you know. Is that what your grandfather did when he was talking about the fairy road and he was talking about fairy forts and, and, and this kind of the supernatural, the little people from another place? Did he tell them in a way that you swallowed and believed? Well, he told them in a way that they were just facts, really. And I, mean, I remember him telling me about, um, you know, someone would t- told him that a person might have gone to a fairy fort or gone somewhere like that looking to be healed of some affliction and it might happen, but then if they went back looking for more things, they might come away doubly afflicted. And so there was a kind of, um, there was a dark side to the fairies, Mm. uh, which was very exciting. Um, So there was that, but it was always told in a way that was very real, and that these things just happened, they happened to someone that he knew, probably never happened exactly to him, but that always made it seem more real. And the, the set that we're sitting on is a pub, could be a pub in, in rural Leitrim in and around about the time you wrote the play. Um, did, did you go down to the pub with him? Did you see the characters that we see? Are people like the characters that we see on stage in the weir? Very much so. His routine would have been that we would get up, have our breakfast, um, and we would drive into Carrick and Shannon, and uh, he would go to Mass, or sometimes would go to Mass in Jamestown, the little village beside him, but it was just him and the priest, and they would just have their Mass in the, in the priest's house. And I wouldn't go, but he would go and uh, just the two of them would be in a room having a little mass together. And then we would go into town and he would put on his bet on the horses. And then we would get what we needed and bring it home and uh, get on with our day. So there was a little routine like that, but I could see how important those routines were to people who live by themselves. And that there's a line in the play where they talk about, you know, you can uh, fight feeling of loneliness by putting the radio on and he used to say that to me he used to say the radio is the illusion of company you know it's a it was an insight to me as a young person into a different stage of life Mm. and what might be there for for any of us and Katrina I suppose the world of the weir and the world of Leitrim not that far from the world of Donegal and little rural pubs like where you grew up yourself obviously Little pubs like this would have been all over the place. Are they still there? Oh, yeah, they are, yeah. I mean, some of them have TVs in them, but they're still there. (laughs) They're still pretty similar. And you do have quite a few sort of rural pubs out on the middle of a road in the middle of nowhere at home, yeah. Yeah. And and do you think do we get do we get the kind of characters that we have here? I mean, do you have a, a barman like the young Brendan here who's kind of mind in the house and as a family atom <laughs> about what should you do with the land and what should you do with various places yeah I'd say you do 100% I mean actually I was talking to somebody not so long ago and you know their dilemma was they they were a barman in a pub they lived so far away from the pub that they needed a car to get to work but the wages didn't cover the petrol and would they keep the job and get a car and be in debt or would they not take the job and have no money? <laughs> so there is those kind of mm. little, you know, for young people, um, I suppose in, in rural Ireland, whether it's Donegal, Leitrim, wherever it is, there are those kind of 
I suppose, old stories, those old expectations, those kind of old histories that they're all kind of living into until they find their own story. Was it a play that you kind of had your eye on to, to do for a long time? I did, actually. I mean, I love the play, but I, I, I mean, I suppose I was a bit nervous of it because of its size and history. I mean, it's been an incredibly successful production play and there's been loads of productions of it all over the place so yeah I have had my eye on it but from a bit of a distance and then when Connor started to come and work with us uh, here he works with us on, in our script department I thought maybe I'll chance asking him for it <laughs> <laughs> but he was very generous mm -hmm. and gave it to us yeah you 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 were happy to see a, a revival then Connor yeah? of course yeah and I think to have um, you know a play like this on the Abbey stage is um, is a really great fit, I think. You know, I think the Abbey was founded by writers um, who had a very spiritual um, interest, and W.B. Yeats and Lady Gregory and John Millington Singh, they all had plays with lots of ghosts in them. And I think there's a certain, this, for me, the Abbey is a kind of like a secular church in some way, or a pagan kind of church, and up here is like an altar where these things really vibrate. So I think it, uh, it fits really well here. I was delighted when Katrina asked me. And because it was, the first production was in London, it was commissioned by the Royal Court back, whatever that would have been, 26 years ago, I guess, the commission would have happened. A lot of your work was in, was in London at that time, did that keep you away from here, for, you know, from, from the Abbey specifically maybe, or from working in Dublin in general over a period of time, Did that big success in London? Well, I had been doing my plays with a little theatre company around Dublin and the Fringe. We were in the International Bar and we were down at the Crypt in Dublin Castle and we were in the City Arts Centre and places like that, mm. places you remember very well, I'm sure, Sean. And yeah. I was doing all of that and then what happened was um, I had a play called This Lime Tree Bower on in the um, Crypt in Dublin Castle and uh, some people I was... Uh, that I knew, some friends of mine, they knew a literary agent who was coming over from London and they said, you know, it would be great if uh, he saw your play. So he, his name is Nick Marston and he came and he saw the play and he said to me, I could probably get this on in London when I met him across the street in Brogan's pub on Dame Street and uh, within, I gave him the script and then within a few weeks I went over to London and had meetings with the Bush Theatre and with the Royal Court. And I decided to do the play at the Bush Theatre because they were going to let me do my own production that I had done here. And the Royal Court said, well, look, maybe will you do something else for us? Have you any other ideas? And I said, well, I've got this idea for people telling each other ghost stories. And in my head, I had always kind of thought of it as like the Canterbury Tales, you know, that kind of situation where people tell mm. each other stories. And they really loved the idea. And so I wrote it for them in the summer of 1996, and it went on in the summer of 1997. It went on, was it initially for four weeks? Yeah, it was, went on initially for four weeks in just a um, little 60-seat space, and it was very intimate. It was almost like being just in the bar with the actors. Mm. Um, Brendan will remember it very well. And it was only supposed to yeah, be four weeks, and then they said, oh, we think we'll put another week on it. And then they put another week on it, and then they, it went on for probably two months or so. And then they said, look, we're just going to have to move it into another theatre. And so they moved it into a bigger theatre, the Duke of York's. And it um, played there then for the next few years. It was unbelievable, yeah, with, with successive those, casts. Yeah, and, and, and the big awards came, and it went to Broadway, and, and, you know. 
Yeah, there was a hunger for it. I can't quite explain it really, but um, there was there was definitely people people really seemed to to want it. Yeah. Yeah, can you kind of open up what you think is that hunger for it? I mean, the storytelling here, each of the characters, we have Jack, the character now played by Brendan, Brendan Coyle that you mentioned, who played Brendan the Barman in that original production. We have him coming in. Yeah. Uh, he tells a couple, two stories, in, in fact. Uh, Jim, the par- character played by Marty Ray, who lives with his mum and is kind of looking after her, he, he tells a story. Peter Coonan's character... He tells a story <laughs> about, he starts it off actually with, you know, the kind of, the, the, and they're all, they've all got this kind of supernatural air to them. And then uh, Jolie's character, the Valerie character, Jolie Abrahamson character, then tells her story, which kind of shifts things enormously. And we're not going to talk too much about what, yeah, what happens there. No, we certainly don't. <laughs> but what, what, what do you think pulls people into this play, Katrina? There's a couple of things, I think. The humanity of the characters is one thing. They're all very recognisable. Even if you've never been to rural Ireland, you'll know somebody like one of these men in this play or like uh, Valerie in the play. The second thing is it's hilarious. It's really, really funny and people love comedy. But it's the beauty about the comedy is it's balanced with the humanity and and the truth of people who are lonely and isolated and um, to get the two things that speak so beautifully and artic- are so articulate about the human condition together is kind of rare enough. And we all love stories. Mm. Everyone loves being told a story. And what I, what, what I find constantly fascinating about the play is, you know, it, it shouldn't work. Like technically, objectively, it shouldn't work. You shouldn't be able to sit and watch a play and know that you know most of the characters are going to tell you a story and not be kind of fed up mm. with the idea after <laughs> the first two. Like, but for some reason, it always works. And even if I watch it every night, it still works. Yeah. The way they're delivered, the reasons are delivered. You know, the comedy, the beautiful detail that sort of signifies each, each different character's way of thinking. All of it just works. You just can't help yourself. It's it's. And in the yeah. writing, Connor, were you, were you thinking comedy? Were you thinking <laughs> tragedy? Or can, can you just not even think in those terms when you're writing, you know, a character and trying to bring them to life on the page? I think I was at um, Whistle in the Dark here few weeks ago which was a magnificent production and I was um, found myself in the fortunate position of uh, sitting beside um, Jane Brennan, Tom Murphy's uh, life partner and um, we were sitting there after the play and I think Tom was like 26 when he wrote that play, similar age I probably would have been when we did the Weir first and I, I found myself saying to Jane how did he write that when he was in his 20s and she said that she had asked him that and he said sort of with a mixture of modesty and perhaps also um, pride he said pure instinct I think for me the thrill was the ghost stories I I always had a, a a wonderful deep fascination with ghost stories and I thought if I could share my excitement of that that would be enough but then the idea, I suppose, that you are able to just get into writing this really fun, realistic dialogue where they sort of talk about nothing for ages and sort of just lots and lots of small talk. But it's the subtext is the fun. And so you just feel all the different dynamics going on underneath that. That's just that's the natural home of playwriting. But I would have to say that um, 
when you're young like that and you're in your 20s, you're writing things. I probably wrote the Weir in about 10 days, whereas like now it would take me 10 months to write a play. So there's just something about being young and yeah. not really thinking. Yeah. We're going to listen to an extract uh, from, the, from the piece. What, how would you set this scene up for us, Connor? Well, um, at this point, um, Jack, who is the, sort of the patriarchal figure in the play, has told a story about the fairies. And um, he now is sort of putting up a challenge to Finbar to tell a story about something that happened to him. And Finbar is very reluctant to do so. All right, so we listen to that extract now. And there is a little bit of language at the, at the top of this clip in particular. Did you have a little run-in with the fairies? Or who was it that time before you went? Ah, no, Jesus. Because you were very brave that time, weren't you? Ah, for fuck's sake. Ah, come on now, you were great that time. Ah, you're a bollocks. Ah, you, you know, talking to the fairies now, you know. It wasn't the fairies. It was the Walsh young one having us all on. It was only an old codger. She's an America now. Neve Walsh. It was Neve that time. Yeah? Ah, she was a header, looking for attention. What happened? This was the brave fella. Ah, stop. It was nothing. This was a family lived up beside Big Finbar's place, the Walshes. Ah, they were only old blow-ins. He was a guard. Blow-ins? Like me. Ah, no. You know what I mean. (laughs) Jeez, you'll be losing business with them kind of remarks, huh? Valerie will agree with me there now. Ah, she knows what I mean. Valerie's very welcome. She knows that, don't you? Leave her alone. You're embarrassing everybody now. Jesus. <laughs> Tell her the story. Ah, Janie. Shall you have her in a haunted house already? She won't be able to sleep. No, I'd like to hear it. It's not even a real one. She wants to hear one. Don't be moaning and tell her. Come on. It's just a crowd of headbangers is all it was. There was a house out near where we were. At the other side of the knock there. It would have been the nearest place to us, Valerie. About a quarter of a mile down the road. And the old lad Finnerty lived on his own down there. And his family got him into a nursing home. Out by them down in Westport. And the people that moved in were the Walshes. And your man was sergeant in the guard stationed in Carrick. And like he was 50 odd and still only a sergeant. So like he was no Sherlock Holmes, you know. (laughs) He wasn't Walsh in the yard or anything. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and they moved in, and he had three daughters who were teenagers, and a young fella who was married back in Longford there. So the daughters were with him and the missus. And I knew them a little bit, because that was the year Big Finbar died. God rest him. And they arrived around the time of the funeral, so, you know, I met them then. And I was living on my own because me and Big Finbar were the only two in it at the time. So... I was the bachelor boy, and a gaggle of young ones moving in next door. Yo-ho, you know. (laughs) And at the time, I would have been wondering what to do, Valerie, you know? Whether to sell it on, or farm it, or you know. And I was 22, 23, you know? And it was, it would have been around 11 or 12 o'clock this night. And there was a knock at the door. And it was Mrs. Walsh. And she was all upset asking if I could come in. She didn't know anyone in the area and there was a bit of trouble. So, what kind of trouble, I says. And she says she was after getting a phone call from the young one, Neve. And she was after doing the Luigi board. (laughs) Or what do you call it? Ouija board. Ouija board. The Luigi board. 
She was down there in a chipper in Carrick. What's she thinking about? Ah, fuck <laughs> off. I meant the Ouija board. You know what I meant. She was after being the down Luigi in... The Ouija board! She was after... Come on, now. She was after being down in a friend's or hers house at this, and they were after doing the Ouija board. <laughs> <laughs> The cast of The Weir, they're performing from Conor McPherson's play, The Weir, and we'll be back with more from the Abbey Theatre after this break. And welcome back to the Abbey Theatre and this arena special from the set of Conor McPherson's play, The Weir, in a new production at our National Theatre, The Abbey. I've turned around now to face the cast that we just heard performing uh, that wonderful scene from the way Sean Fox, who plays the bar owner Brendan, Brendan Coyle, plays the garage owner Jack, Marty Ray, who plays Jim, Peter Coonan, uh, plays Fimber, who told us the Luigi board story in the midst of all of that, and Valerie, played by Jolie Abraham. Uh, Brendan, Brendan Coyle, uh, Connor mentioned it about the fact that you were part of that first production, playing the part of Brendan, which Sean sitting beside you is, mm-hmm. is, is playing now. What are your memories of, you know, that it's going on for four weeks in a small 60-seater, <laughs> uh, and two years later, you're on, or whatever number of years later, you're on Broadway? Yeah, uh, very vivid, very vivid memories. I just remember, um, I was living in Dublin at the time, and um, I didn't know Connor very well. I'd met him briefly at the crypt, and... Um, but I'd seen this lime tree bower several times at the bush. I, I saw it there and I did something I've never done before. I went back to the, the same show repeatedly <laughs> to see this work. I couldn't get over it. And I was dragging people down there and it just really, really struck me, this, this piece. So anyway, this uh, script arrived the weir and um, I knew it was special. I knew it was brilliant. Um, um, uh, I was very excited about the prospect of being in it. So I went to London, auditioned, did all, did all that. And, um, and yeah, we, and we went ahead and... Um, we didn't know what we had. We knew it was special, we knew it was beautiful, we knew it was funny, and um, we achieved that thing which I absolutely believe we've achieved here. We created an alchemy. It's something you can't formulize, you know? So it just came together in the most perfect way. But we didn't know until we had that magic ingredient, which is the audience. And the audience told us, as the, our audiences are telling us here, that this is a very special piece of work. Mm. So, um, yeah, we did it, and um, everyone went bananas for it, but we were in this tiny space, because originally it was supposed to be, it was commissioned for the Royal Court upstairs. Their remit was to do new work. So they didn't have a a home. They were being refurbished. So we did it either on the stage or the scene dock of the ambassadors, and um, our designer created this pub, this Leeton pub. We didn't have a stage door or anything. It was like a moving installation, an art piece, rather than a conventional presentation of a play. So... um, and like I say, everyone went nuts. There was only one entrance to the theatre. They were queuing around the block, all that kind of stuff. And um, it extended and extended. And then we transferred. And we maintained the intimacy of it um, and the power of the piece. And, and we did like five stints, I think, in the West End. Mm. Ian Rickson was telling me it was the play that kept the Royal Court afloat. Yeah, he, was, he was the artistic he director. Was the artistic of the director. Royal well, Court he became the, the artistic director of the Royal Court on, after, after we did the Weir. And, um, before Jerusalem, this was the most successful play in the court's history. So um, it was a great run, and we ended up on Broadway. Mm. Um, so it was a hell of a journey, you know. And but we he, had no idea. I mean, we knew yeah. it was great. We knew it was lovely. And but you didn't we know we're doing, Yeah, we're doing this great piece. And then, um, so you had to wait 25 years to get to tell a story, and yeah, now right. you get to tell two stories. Yeah, Because, <laughs> yeah. of course, the character of Brendan the barman, <laughs> he's the kind of... he he's. Keeping things going, but he's he the soul of the piece. Yeah, he doesn't. He doesn't tell any stories, but 
Jack gets to well, tell Well, he does. Too. I mean, his presence tells a story, and um, his situation, his circumstances tell a story, and his experience of what it's like to be here when the Germans come tells, tells its own story. <laughs> yeah. What that's like for him when Jack and Jim desert him and go down to Carrick, because they they're not mad about the Germans. So um, he has a story. <laughs> I used to be very defensive about this. How do you feel that Brendan doesn't have a story? He's got a story. <laughs> he is a story. Yeah, yeah. All that. So, uh, and I still feel that. Yeah, way. I was going to say, you're not very defensive anymore. <laughs> you're just defensive. I'm just defensive. <laughs> but, um, it feels great. It's, you know, I had one part on my list of things to play, one and one only, and that was Jack in the Weir. And I didn't know how that was going to happen, where or when it was going to happen. And then my agent rang, had nothing to do with me. I just got a call from the agent saying, do you want to play Jack in the weird at the Abbey? I said, of course I do. And then I spoke to Katrina, we had a Zoom call, and I thought this is going to be reimagined and mm. refreshed and reinvented for the 21st century in what's arguably its spiritual home on the main stage of the Abbey. And so here we are. You played your Brendan opposite Jim Norton's yeah. Jack. Yeah. Now, I don't know how much of a shadow that would cast uh, on an actor. Because, I mean, phenomenal actor, obviously. Yeah, absolutely. I'm in awe of him. I'm playing this part and look, you know, watching Jim and listening to Jim do it for two years. I'm, I'm in awe of the man. Um, and it still resonates. I still, you know, I hear it and feel that original production. We did it so many times, you know, mm. to so many different types of audiences. But um, I was very keen to mark the differences um, with different people, we have different energies, and I wanted a more a darker... Jack, um, a sort of that, that inappropriate temper that he has. Mm -hmm. um, I, I just wanted something more cantankerous. I was using these significant words that Connor writes about him. So he's kind of darker and he still has that charm in his storytelling and his care and concern for his fellow castmates, his rivalry with Finbar. I just wanted to crank all that up a bit. Mm. And I'm interested in what all the men or, and the, what all the characters do, you know, like um, Finbar's in leisure and hospitality, of course. Brendan's of the land. Jim turns his hand to anything um, <laughs> and everything. Brilliantly, is my theory. And Valerie's in academia. And Jack's more industrial. I mean, it's me a mechanic. He's a small yeah, time he's mechanic. Owner, yeah. It was kind of based on my uncle Manus as a welder. And I kind of, that kind of gruff in industrial type approach to his life and work was an influence. So it was, I wanted to mark the differences. Um, and there are a lot of differences about this in the original. I wouldn't change anything about the original or mm. anything about this. This seems more momentous in a way, because as I say, it's on the main stage of the Abbey, and it's been given an epic treatment, I think. Mm. Uh, what, does, what did it feel like for you, Sean Fox, playing the character of Brendan when you heard? Uh, yeah, Brendan Coyle played the character originally, and you know, he went to Broadway with it. He won an Olivia Award for Best Actor for in a supporting role. It was an American award as well. And an American, <laughs> which was, yeah. So how did you feel when you heard? Yeah, and he's going to be, the opening scene of the play is Brendan and Jack. That's who it is. It's, it's the barman and it's Jack the mechanic. It's just the two of you. What kind of pressure did that put on you, Sean? Or did you just ignore it? I didn't realise uh, it never came up. <laughs> <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't mention it. Never mentioned. <laughs> no, like I did. I, I seen when the cast went up, I seen it and I looked at it and I went, oh, great. <laughs> um, yeah, like it's a tough act to follow now. Brendan is a, quite a bit better of an elegant elegant, more eloquent speaker than I am. So in a manner, in many respects, he is a tougher act to follow. Um, but I would have to say that during the rehearsal process, um, there was never any, there was an awful lot of generosity of spirit and space given so mm. I could find this uh, on my feet without having to concern myself too much with what came before. And if that opening scene for you, uh, Brendan, to go back to Brendan Coyle as opposed to Brendan the character, 
are you still hearing Brendan's lines as much as you're hearing? Um, well, uh, what kind of mix-up <laughs> is in your head between Brendan's lines and Jack's lines? Yeah, it's funny you should say that. Um, um, we, I mean, we start the play. It's, I love this ensemble. It's a very special ensemble. So before every show, me and him run that little opening act, and you know, we're like a double act. Um, but there was just one early preview where, I don't know, my head wasn't in it for a couple of moments, and I just said three of his lines. <laughs> and, yeah, and the look I got from <laughs> on stage is... Mm. Uh, it's Thankfully, my next line was, was, would you ever fuck off? <laughs> <laughs> it was the most powerful line of the evening. It was <laughs> meant, yeah. yeah. And he, where, came where, up, he came up in the end. He said, "Coyle, do you not have enough lines?" Or something? <laughs> <laughs> I have to say, I'm mean, hand on heart. My I prefer Sean's Brendan to my memory of Brendan. Yeah. He's brilliant. Yeah. And uh, going to then, I'll, I'll come to you, Marty, on this, Marty, the character of of Jim, who is is one of these, in some ways, quiet countrymen. Uh, what was what was your route into to his world? Um, I think the, the first. The first place that I kind of worked from was the fact that how quiet he is uh, throughout the play and then has this huge story that he tells. So you're reading a play and you think, oh, this guy's quite quiet. Why? And then this huge story comes out, which is quite upsetting, really. Mm. Um, and that was the first place of why is he so quiet and then reveals something so huge without um, reading the room properly, I think. And that's kind of where it all started. And he seems very, he feels very familiar to me. I was saying to you before uh, we started uh, this afternoon, I was talking to you about this idea that, you know, these are countrymen, they've no emotions, they're not emotional men yeah. at all. But in fact, yeah. one of the most moving lines in the play is, is delivered between you and, and Valerie, the character played by Julie. I'm not gonna say what the line is, yeah, yeah. but Jim, your character, is very capable of expressing emotion. Oh, yeah. I think in a lot of Irish drama, we talk an awful lot about Irish men not being able to emote or being emotionally stunted or whatever like that. And they're still human beings. Um, so they still feel, do you know what mm, I mean? It, mm. it isn't that they don't feel the thing. It's often, I think, Tom Murphy, who you talked about earlier, um, he kind of put it brilliantly. He used to talk about the beautiful articulacy of the inarticulate man, that they are feeling everything. It's just the inability to say or show it. And um, I think that that's where the that's where the kind of the rub of of Jim lies as well. That this character comes in, the stranger comes in, and she has an effect on these guys that are sitting there every night usually. I mean, Finbar's calls mm. in and out, but these guys are usually together. And she enables something in them. Uh, she opens them. So it's not as if she activates an emotionality in them. It was always there. It's just that she enables it to come out or something. And they, I think what Jim says at the end to her, actually, is probably one of the bravest things he's ever done in his life. Um, and so it's also quite, he becomes a hero mm. at the end, I think. Yeah, no, the, the, the kind of emotional connection between all of the characters on stage is quite extraordinary in that respect. And, and Jolie, you've been sitting there, as you do in the play to a large extent, <laughs> listening, <laughs> listening a lot. Mm -hmm. 
How important, Valerie is your character is this woman who um, we find out why and all the rest of it as the play goes on, but she's coming down to live in this part of the world now after uh, some experiences uh, in Dublin. How important would you say listening is in this, in this role, in the role of Valerie, in fact, for all the, the characters here? How active is the listening when you're on stage? Um, I hear something new every day, so it's actually really exciting. Now that you know we're kind of in it together as a company and we're kind of like living and breathing, I can now just listen. And I literally, there's something new I hear. I'm like, oh, I didn't, why didn't I hear that before? And so I'm always reacting because I know there's so much in this play that still has to be discovered. So it's actually pretty easy. And I mean, they're really charming. So it's not a lot, there's really not a lot of acting required on my part. It's, it's just being there with them and hearing and listening to, oh, well, you know, Brendan Coyle did that a little differently today. That's interesting. What does that do to me, you know? In the meantime, just keeping Valerie's backstory alive, it, just listening to them keeps me alive. So it's easier than you think. But most acting is about listening. It's not really as much talking as it is about the listening because you're only going to say something after you've heard what someone says, you know? The need to speak. Yeah. Yeah, I suppose that, that's acting, acting is reacting type of idea, yeah. Brendan. Absolutely. It, it's, it's very, that, that, is what, that is why this ensemble is the way it is. You are all listening to each other. Oh, absolutely. And it's, it's, I, I mean, it's a, it's a treat to sit there and watch the individual work and the textures that are going into the performances, but also to be part of this interconnected ensemble. And listening in a way, there's, what I love about what's happening in the audience is the um, pin drop silence, mm. attentive listening, as these stories kind of weave a kind of magic, and then the gales of laughter, because mm. it is a hilarious play yeah, yeah. um, um, so that Active listening is something we coined in the first rehearsals, Ian Rickson coined that. It's a, it was a thing that just, just became a thing, active listening. The more we just tuned into each other and listened, and that's what we're getting from our audiences. Yeah, so it's yeah. great. It's a powerful thing, tangible. <clears throat> And Peter, we, we put you on the spot before the break. For you. you were the one that had to tell your story, but yours is the first story that, that kind of you told part of it uh, for us. What is the feeling you know, coming up to those? Because each of you, except for Sean playing the part of it, each of you have those moments when, you know, it's coming up, it's on its way, it's on its way, <laughs> and it's here. This is me, and it's, I'm by myself. What is that feeling when you're telling that story or you're I, heading into it? For the first few shows, it's frightening. But then as you get on, it becomes, you think about it less and less. Yeah, there's a journey through to it. I mean, I'm only thinking about that piece the other night as to whether or not Finbar really wants to tell the story or not. And I'm starting to believe that he does. Uh, previously, I was like, ah, would you leave him alone? But he's kind of enjoying it because he's, at the beginning, he forget, you forget that he's telling a story about how brave he was. Mm. Um, so it, it, it shifts to how brave he thinks he was. Um, but the more frightening thing is the idea of the reaction each character has to Finbar. You know, he immediately gets the sense that he's not really wanted here. <laughs> well, now he does come in in the flashiest suit that I've yeah. seen in a long time. You, you, you appear in that door, it's the, it's the best suit to make an entrance in. It's a fine color of a suit. It's, yeah. And, and wh wh you, you've invented this bit of business of constantly yanking up the, <laughs> yanking up the trousers. But that's, it. that's only because they were too small. Oh, <laughs> right, of course. <laughs> I know, it's part of the, it was a character choice. It was a character choice. <laughs> No, yeah, the suit is great. I mean, like, if nothing else, you just wear that suit and go on stage. Yeah. I mean, if you didn't know your lines. Um, you've, you're just fresh off the production of Whistle in the Dark, the Tom Murphy play that was on down in the Peacock. Is this a very different world? Or, or do you see similarities between the world of Connor's, Connor McPherson's The Weir 
and that play from Tom Murphy, which is, you know, decades earlier in terms of writing. Are there similarities in, in the way the men behave? Well, I think we spoke about there was certain similarities between this and uh, conversations and a homecoming, especially actually Finbar's character with the keys, uh, the terrible line in conversations about you're just a, a bunch of keys to um, Liam. But I think, no, it's a different world to inhabit completely um, from the point of view of the time that it's set and the turmoil. I mean, Michael in and, and myself and Marty spoke closely about it when uh, I was rehearsing the play, but, you know, that's a, a character who's carrying so much emotion, so much need to try and change mm. and to want his whole family to change and obviously been brought up in a very traumatic uh, childhood and trying to fight through that and trying to understand what the emotions are happening to him. Now, very much similar in this play, I think, you know, with Finbar, I speak for myself, is that there's definitely a, a connection with this, with the past and with this place that he doesn't realise still holds and has a deep, deep effect on him. And I think as the play goes on, you start to realise what these demons are and what he has run away from or attempted to run away from. So there's similarities, but they're different worlds to inhabit. And, and as, as Peter mentioned there, Marty, you played that same character in a different production of, uh, of, of Whistle in the Dark. And you, you spoke about it. I mean, mm. that's, that's an interesting kind of that you might have a chat about how to approach this character because productions can be very different. And they were, yeah. I, I, don't think, I don't think we were ever kind of talking about how to play it or anything. It was just more... It's, a, it's an odd play to be in, I think. Mm. Uh, it's a tough play to be in. And I think it was more talking about how to survive it more than anything else. I mean, you know, Peter had done all that work uh, of developing a character and how to play it on his own. It was, mm. you know, we only kind of started chatting about it once they were getting into the nitty gritty of actually kind of living with it, which is tough, I think. Uh, is this uh, a tough one to play? This one? Yeah. No, it's a dream. It's really easy, what Jolie was saying. It's actually quite... Is that because of all this listening that you get to do, as well as your, you know, knowing that here comes Breacher's Brook, my, my monologue is on the way, or my story is on its way? Well, I always just think, well, at least I'm not lucky from Godot. Because <laughs> I played, I was in that show before, and I used to remember watching Garrett Lombard every night and thinking, like, what must that feel like, knowing that it's coming? <laughs> <laughs> and what's it about? Yeah. <laughs> Not quite the same type of storytelling, <laughs> I think, in, in that particular speech. <laughs> all right, um, sitting patiently behind you there have been our, our two musicians. And the music uh, set such a lovely atmosphere for us, Eamon Cagney and Courtney Cullen, who are going to make their way over now to the, the, the car where they perch themselves for their, for their musical performances within the piece. Um, and we're going to hear a section of the music from the current Abbey Theatre production of the weir it the composer is tom lane and the sound designer is rob maloney and the two instruments that you're going to hear are a fiddle and a pan a tin pan
music from the weir. We'll be back with more from the Abbey stage after this break. And welcome back to the Abbey Theatre and this arena special from the set of Conor McPherson's The Weir in a new production here at the National Theatre. Uh, Conor McPherson, writer and the director of the production, Katrina McLaughlin's here with me, as are all of the cast members and the, the two musicians who we heard playing just before the break. When did the decision to, to bring music into play, how, how quickly did that come about, Katrina? I think that was in from the beginning for me because I suppose for me it's really about what the music represents and I always felt that this play has this other element in it. Um, you know, when you're programming a play, you're always thinking about why you're doing it as, you know, apart from it being a great play and the audience wanting to see it, you want to think about why you're doing it now. And um, something about this play really struck me that a lot of people at the moment are trying to think about what they believe in. A lot of people ha have moved sort of towards a sort of more pagan understanding or a, of what we believe in, and especially with everything that's happening with the environment and a kind of move away from maybe the Catholic Church. And there's something about the sort of history of Ireland and the, the myths and the folklore that kind of underpin our belief systems that I think is in this play, which is part of the reason I wanted to do it. And I didn't, like, I suppose I felt that the best way to represent that other element was through music. Of course, music and, and you, Connor, we're going to think immediately of Gerd from the North Country, your, your play in and around the music of Bob Dylan. And you mentioned earlier on about, uh, of course, yourself being a fine lyricist in the early, in the early <laughs> part of your, your career. But I'm wondering um, about this new position, because you're also a senior, a senior associate writer here at the Abbey. How important is that? What will that involve, in fact, in terms of relationship over the next while with the Abbey? Well, I think it's important that the craft and the art of playwriting, which is so central to Irish literature, um, is cherished. And I think um, Katrina and Mark are, are wonderful custodians of that tradition. And they've approached myself and Marina Carr as veterans who have plenty of scar tissue um, <laughs> writing plays over the years. And uh, just asking us to, um, to read and engage with uh, young playwrights who are coming up and to just give any little you know, help mm. that we can to maybe avoid some of the pitfalls or maybe any little you know, advice we can give. So it's lovely to be able to connect into that and feel that the future is in safe hands because I think it's a very important part of Irish culture. Yeah, I, I sometimes wonder if I look at rose-tinted spectacles through, through the period of the 80s and the, and the 90s when I was involved in theatre and the writers that were there then. Did, did the primacy of the, or the importance of the writer, had it slipped something in your mind over the past couple of decades? I think it probably ebbs and flows. And I think that I remember when I started working, say, you know, in the 90s, becoming a professional playwright, that was a very fertile time for writing. Mm. And there was Marina, as I mentioned. There was, of course, Martin McDonough. There was Marco Rowe. There was Eugene O'Brien. There was so many. It just it, it, it goes on and on. And um, that was... So I don't know what was in the air at that moment, but there was a lot of new plays. And then... I think perhaps in the la you know in the last ten years maybe I think there was maybe to do with social media and new technologies becoming very freely available to people I think there was much more an expl exploration of 
multimedia shows rather than plays which are just written with a pen on a piece of paper. I think that just maybe sat to one side mm. for a while, but I have a feeling that that's coming back. I don't think it'll ever go away. And um, I'm just delighted to see it in such good shape from the wonderful scripts we're reading here. And I wondered about, uh, had you, was that part of yourself and Mark O'Brien's um, thoughts and, uh, around the programming that's, gonna, that's coming? That has happened up to now, if you think of Whistling in the Dark, which you've mentioned. There was a new production of Portia Coughlin here on the main stage of the Abbey in recent times as well. Uh, and indeed, this production of The Weir, big production of Translations, which is just back off tour as well. Is, is that, are you, are you looking to re-establish something around the role of the writer in theatre, Katrina? Well, definitely, I suppose I wanted to sort of celebrate playwriting specifically. And I think a lot of writers are choosing to write in other forms and TV has taken a lot of writers. So yeah, I very definitely wanted to celebrate playwriting as a specific mm skill set but also you know we're all coming back out of covid uh we need to find a reason to bring people together brilliant stories by brilliant writers is the best way to bring people together so that was also a big driver and and brendan obviously the, the mention of television there we think of downtown abbey people will know you as bates in, in downtown abbey the storytelling that television seemed to have held for a while. Have you a sense, um, you're based in, in England for the most part, I think, in, in terms of your theatre, have you a sense that there's something happening in terms of writing for theatre? Is it changing in, in Britain as well? I, I think pre-COVID, there was um, some very exciting things going on with theatre makers at the um, places like the Arcola and Finborough and you know, on the fringes, the, the young theatre makers. It's, it's very gratifying to see a new generation of theatre makers coming through. But they had the rug pulled from under them with COVID and, mm. and also with arts funding cuts. It's been quite brutal. But um, the, the talent is out there and also the, the desire to work in theatre as opposed to just migrating to television, um, having that ambition. And I guess, but the, but the work like um, Bates in Downton Abbey, it, does it allow you to do theatre maybe? It oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. I just have this kind of cut-off point where you say, you've got to do a play, you know. Yeah. Um, but uh, with regards to the writing of that, Julian Fellows is unashamedly a big fan of soap opera. I mean, he says his favourite shows are like Coronation Street and Hill Street Blues and Dynasty or Dynasty. He was kind of based on those structures. Mm. Um, and these interweaving storylines. Soap opera is the most successful genre in storytelling in the world, and so mm. we're just this posh soap opera. Really. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know if Love, Hate would be thought of as soap opera, but Fran, I'm wondering, in, in the case of Brandon, you have that big role kind of that allows him to do it, and I wonder to what extent do those roles follow you around? I mean, does Fran follow you around sometimes like a bad smell, or is he always a welcome being? It smells of dogs, but generally, no, it's, it's, it's a positive thing. I mean, it, gave, it allowed me to um, be able to work here. You know, it, was, it came at a time when I hadn't done a lot, so by doing Love, Hate, it meant that I could get back on stage and get cast on stage and get seen for plays that I wanted to do. So, But it's always a fond memory, and it, it, people don't recognise me as much, but once they hear me speaking, they immediately go, ah, that's a man. Finally, um, Connor, I'll ask you, how important was the Weir? I mean, it was a huge success for you at the time, came very young. How important was that in launching off your career, really? I know there had been successes before that, but really it was the big one, wasn't it? Yes, I think the what it, it taught me was that um, a success like that usually comes out of nowhere. No one can plan it. We did, certainly didn't plan it. I didn't know that's what was going to happen. I was delighted it was going to go on for four weeks so that we're sitting here 25 years later 
enjoying a brilliant cast like this performing it it's uh it's you realize over the years how rare it is for that to happen it's a wonderful thing in any writer's career i'm glad it happened to me so young because i've been able to enjoy the echo of it in my life and it's something that i'm very proud of and i'm very proud of this production now today and i'm able to see it through different eyes of course because i'm a different age and that's a great privilege too well, thank you all for sharing your thoughts with us uh, for this special programme. And that is it from the set of Conor McPherson's The Weir at the Abbey Theatre. My thanks to Conor McPherson, Stephen McLaughlin, and the cast, Brendan Coyle, Marty Ray, Peter Coonan, Jolie Abraham, and Sean Fox. Also the musicians, Eamon Cagney and Courtney Cullen. The run continues into the new year. More information about that uh, on abbeytheatre.ie. Also like to say a major thanks to Brona Doherty, uh, stage manager, and her team for facilitating uh, this uh, show for us. Uh, very kind of them to, to be in here uh, to, to help us do that. Thanks to all at the Abbey, in fact, as well. Sharon Sorhan, Christine Monk, and Roisin McGann. This idea was born over a cup of coffee sitting out in the foyer of the Abbey one lunchtime, and suddenly, before we knew it, we were planning... We were planning this programme, so sometimes things just happen by some kind of magic alchemy. Uh, it's been an absolute privilege to be here on sound for RTE, where Gar Duffy and Liam Mullen and Ruth Kennington and Derek Conaghy uh, on sound for the Abbey. Tonight's show was researched by Liam Murphy, coordinated by Amandine Paso-Divine and produced by Kay Sheehy. Till next time, good night. <laughs> <laughs>